0: and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. All organizations are most vulnerable from the inside. Get behind the walls, real or technological, of any fortress, and defeating it is much easier. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, The Book of Acts, Growth Against All Odds, with this sermon entitled, Attacks on the Church, Falsehood from Within which covers Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Let me pray for us. We'll jump into the book of Acts this morning. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace and your goodness, your kindness towards us in Jesus. And thank you for the privilege it is to open your word, to consider the truth of your word as it is presented to us in your Holy Scriptures would you bless the reading and the teaching of your word this morning and would your Holy Spirit come and fill us empower us strengthen us give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have for us in this morning and so Lord we give it to you and we ask you to bless it in Jesus name amen we're in the fourth week of our series in this uh, in our series in the book of Acts that we're calling um, growth against all odds And we're going through the first eight chapters. We're not necessarily going verse by verse, but we are as much as we can. And the parts that we have to skip for the sake of time, we want to fill you in and fill in the gaps as best we can. And as we jump into this week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, primarily Acts chapter 5. We'll do a little bit at the end of chapter 4. I want to just lead us into our time by telling you about something I came across this week. I came across an ad, an advertisement for Coffee Box. Two X's, I don't know if you emphasize emphasized the X, maybe you do, but that extra X is important because this thing is amazing. All right, I want you to see a picture of it. This is it, in all of its glory and splendor, made by ox, whoever that is. They're some of my new favorite people because I, I run on Jesus and coffee, okay? And this thing is incredible. Listen to the description. Of what, of what this thing can do. It's impact-resistant polymer construction built with crush-proof chassis that can withstand 1,500 pounds of pressure, come on. <laughs> Stainless steel hardware and UV-resistant shell. Water and dust resistant with sealed buttons. Give it an IP54 rating. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> It says that it is ultra tough and it's designed to take the bumps and bruises of the the toughest job sites. I don't consider Perimeter Church the toughest of job sites, but I still need one of these in my life. Best part is it is designed to work with all K-Cup models. Amen, praise Jesus. This is the ultimate coffee maker. I watched the ad for this thing on YouTube. They tried to blow it up, no lie. Put a stick of dynamite underneath it and boom, nothing happened to it. They threw it around, they put it in the back of a pickup truck and drove around all over rocks and every other rough terrain you can think of. They put a car on it they put one under each wheel of a car and just set it there and then made their coffee underneath it (laughs) because this is what we do right I mean you would do that I would do that they tried to blow this thing up and destroy it in every way possible and here's the thing about this this coffee box it just kept making coffee the coffee kept flowing and it kept doing what it was designed to do and as I watched this advertisement because when you're a pastor everything becomes a means to an illustration right I thought about the church I thought about the church I thought about the reality that the enemy works over time to do whatever he can do with his demonic forces to destroy the church to bring division, to bring discord, to bring disunity, to do whatever he can do to halt the advancement of the kingdom of God through the body of believers. And the reality is, is it just doesn't work. The church just keeps going. The spirit keeps flowing and the church keeps doing in all of its brokenness and impurities and scratches and dents that come from the works of the enemy in us and around us the church keeps advancing and it has for centuries and if God waits many more centuries to come back it will continue to keep going because here's the reality what we see in the book of Acts time and time again and what we will see again today and the text that we're looking at is that we have a warrior King Jesus who continually and relentlessly defends his church, protects his people, and he does does so through his spirit so that the advancement of the kingdom of God and the well-being of his people in the context of his church remains. Doesn't mean that we're safe, necessarily. Doesn't mean that those attacks won't come. In fact, they'll come often and repeatedly. It just means that the kingdom of God continues forward and the church remains until he comes and purifies us completely and fully. That's the hope of the church and it's not based on because we have it together. It's not because we're, uh, we're some great and wonderful entity. It's because Jesus is great and wonderful and he is the head of the church and he is the one who leads us in triumphal procession. As the scriptures say. We're going to be looking uh, today at a passage, really today and next week, we're going to be in chapter five for the next two weeks, and we're going to be uh, looking closely at how the enemy goes about seeking to destroy the church. In today's passage, we're going to look at his predominant, what I would say is the predominant way in which he seeks to destroy the church, to bring disunity, to halt the advancement of the kingdom of God, and it's from within, It's it's the ways in which he he deceitfully and subtly comes into the life of the church, into the life of the individuals of the church, to begin to to create discord and disunity and slowly pull apart the people of God, slowly halt what it is that God's wanting to do among us and through us, and begin to win, at least that day, because we know that he won't win fully in the end, But he's doing whatever he can within the church, within each local body and within the church globally. And you think about this, there is no better tactic, right, to to go about bringing something down, to make it ineffective. You know, we go back even to ancient history and stories of old, and you, you think about the Trojan horse and how the Greeks were able to infiltrate the city walls, the impenetrable city walls of Troy by masking it as though that they had built this, this huge, beautiful wooden horse to say, this is a gift to you of, of peace. And instead, there were hundreds and thousands of soldiers within the horse that when they got inside the city walls, they spill out and they begin to sack Troy from within. You think about even modern ways in which we go about not just warfare, but even police work. We have undercover cops and spies who want to infiltrate and get on the inside, learn about the illegal system at play, whatever it may be, and begin to pull it apart from the inside out. One of my favorite movies to watch with my kids when they were younger is The Incredibles. You remember how Mr. Incredible eventually had to destroy this This seemingly unstoppable machine with all these hideous tentacles to it, the only way was to get inside and to rip it apart from the inside out. And this is the the MO, if you will, of the enemy. I want to take us to the text, if you'll go to Acts chapter 4, I want to... I want to bring us up to date before we begin to look at chapter 5. I want us to look at the end of chapter 4 where we left off last week. Caleb led us through up until verse 31. And and here's what's happening. Um, There's a rhythm. There's a pattern to what Luke is laying out for us in the book of Acts. And one of the things that we're seeing is that the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2 like we talked about a few weeks ago and Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out, God's work is being established, the church is birthed, uh, 3,000 on that day believe upon Christ, and then what happens just after the Spirit is poured out in that way, the enemy comes and begins to rouse up the authorities. And as we looked at last week, John and Peter are arrested, two of the the apostles, the the two most leading apostles, to bring opposition and persecution, to try to, again, thwart the church, to put a stop to what's happening. And the authorities say to John and Peter, they say, hey, no more. You cannot any longer speak and teach and proclaim in the name of Jesus. And they say, sorry, can't do that. We're not under your authority, but we're under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna keep doing this. And because the authorities were afraid of the people, of the masses and what they might do to them, they let them go. And as John and Peter go back to the gathering of believers, what they find is that there's a gathering of believers who aren't sitting in fear, wringing their hands, but are actually bowing in boldness in prayer, asking God to give them not protection, which is what you and I would probably pray, Our leaders have been taken, oh Lord, protect us. But instead they're praying for boldness to keep proclaiming the name of Jesus. And when you get to the end of that text in verse 31, it says this, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here we have again another account of God pouring out his spirit and doing something Significant that the room is shaking. There's a manifestation of the reality of the presence of God among them to say, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm your power. I'm your strength. I'm your boldness. Keep going. You're going to win. And then Luke does something again that he just did in chapter two pouring out of the Spirit. The opposition to the church, but then what happens is the spirit is being poured out. We get, a, we get an inside look as to what the community of believers looked like. And in Acts chapter 2, we hear things like, and they devoted themselves daily to the prayers and to the breaking of bread, to worshiping together in the temple, to sharing with each other all things that, uh, that they had and that no one had anything uh, in need. No one was in need among them. Those kind of things. And so you get to the end of chapter 4 and you get the very same type description. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy, Person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostles Barnabas, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. This is how chapter 4 ends. And so what we have is we have this rhythmic pattern that Luke is giving us of the Spirit is poured out, and when the Spirit is leading his church and his people are filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, this is what the community looks like. It's unique. It's different. It's different it's strange even maybe even perhaps weird certainly weird to the to the watching world however in in a in a bizarre way it's attractive There's a selflessness that exists among spirit-filled believers. There's an open-handedness to say, whatever is mine is yours. It's not what man can come up with that we might call socialism. It's actually something wholly and uniquely different. It's not communal living necessarily. It's Christ-centered living where people have totally let go of themselves and attached themselves fully to Jesus and to his body. And it's beautiful. Beautiful. This is a community that we see at the end of chapter 2 and that we see again at the end of chapter 4 that's flourishing, that's vibrant, that's thriving. So what better time for the enemy to sneak in? You get to the first verse of chapter 5. And if your Bible translation is like mine, the first word that you see is but. But, pay attention to anytime time you see but, start a sentence like that because it's contrasting. Okay, things are great, things are wonderful, things are thriving. God is at work, the spirit is on the move, the church is advancing day by day. God is adding to those who are being saved among them. Nothing could go wrong. Oh, hold up. But, and it says, but a man named Ananias, but we could read that as, but the enemy is at work. And don't forget that be aware be attuned be on guard and so here's the account we get starting in verse one of chapter five but a man named ananias with his wife sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You may be at this point in the passage and go, hold up, what just happened? What, I, I don't, Peter's calling that you lied to the Holy Spirit. and It seems like he, he brought... He brought some money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Why is that such a bad thing? You've got to remember that Luke, a lot of times, as, as many of the gospel writers and, and, and just authors of Scripture are doing, is they're giving an overarching account. They're giving a summation, and so they're not telling you all of the details. And so part of what's happening behind the scenes here is that Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, have conceived together a plan to deceive to deceive the apostles, and if you're you're lying to God's people, you're ultimately lying to God himself. The issue, listen to this, and I want you to understand in this passage, the issue is not how much or how little they brought. The issue is their deception and their lying. Because what they were actually trying to do, and you'll see this in the text, as I read more of it here in a moment, what they were actually trying to do is they were actually trying to present themselves To be seen among the church is more important and perhaps build a reputation that made them look significant more than what they actually were while also being selfish and lying about it. It was likely that the way chapter 4 ends where Luke is telling us about Barnabas, it's likely that Barnabas was recognized at some level, just simple, just acknowledgement of wow, this is awesome. That this man would come and give all that he earned off the selling of his land, his property, and lay it at the apostles' feet. And this was something that was happening fairly often within the church, which tells us that by this point in time, probably around 5,000, maybe more people are following Christ at this point. And it probably means that that the, the church has grown to include the rich as well started out being mainly the needy, the, low, the lower income that were a part of God's church, but now we're seeing landowners and homeowners as a part of God's, uh, God's community. And as a result of that, you see them letting go of things that the world would say, why would you ever let go of that? And they're saying, I'm so caught up in the kingdom of God. I'm so enamored and amazed and transformed and changed by Jesus And by his spirit, that I'm willing to let go of things that are temporal to embrace the eternal. And so this is happening more in the life of the church. It wasn't wasn't mandatory. It wasn't a command. There's nowhere that we see that the apostles has said, if you own land, you must sell it and bring it to us. That wasn't happening. It was completely voluntary. But it was happening a lot because the spirit was on the move. Satan weasels his way into the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira and he plants this seed and he says, you could be recognized, you could be made much of, why don't you, look, here's a great idea, why don't you sell your land and your home and you're going to be seen as one of those who's really into this Jesus thing and people are going to go, wow, aren't you great, but then you can hold some of it back for yourself, isn't that awesome? And they go, yeah, that sounds good to me. And so they bring this money and they lay it at the feet of Jesus, at at the feet of Peter, the apostles. And Peter, he's been around the block. He's very in tune with deception and betrayal. He's seen it in his own heart when he denied Christ three times. And he saw it with his buddy Judas as he sat next to him at the table. And he knows how this looks, and he sees the deception in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, and that's why he calls them out. It's not about the amount that they laid at the feet, it's about the deception and the lying. So with all of that, let me read verse 3 again. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What he's saying there is, hey, it's your money to do what you want with. It's fine if you only want to bring a part of it. Just don't lie about it. Why is it that you have conceived, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. little side note here. Did you see the connection that Peter made between the Holy Spirit and God? That they're one and the same? You lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. What? Huh. I was expecting Peter to say, hey, I know what you're up to, repent and don't do this again, but hold up, dead? The young men, well, verse 5, and when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Yeah, I I would assume that would happen. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Part two of the story, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened to her husband, but going along with the plan that they had concocted, not knowing uh, what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He's putting her on the the stand, and he's giving her an opportunity to say, okay, here's the truth. And he says, "Did did you sell the land for so much? And he names the price that uh, Ananias had told him, and she said, yes, for that amount. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband in great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Three things I want to lay out before us this morning. Three key reminders that I want us to be uh, attuned to that we can glean from Acts 5, uh, 1 through 11. Here's the first one. Remember to check your heart. This is a phrase that has kind of been uh, popularized among Christian subculture in recent years. Check your heart, man. Check your heart. But really, that's something that should be a part of who we are and what we do. Checking our heart, looking inwardly to say, "Why am I doing what I'm doing? What's really going on under the surface?" And so, I want to ask two questions as a part of this this uh, remembrance to check our hearts. The first one is this: uh, Why do you give? Why do you give? If you're a follower of Jesus, part of what that means is that you are embracing his call and his instructions biblically to give to his kingdom, to give to his church, to give to his work. And this is not, a, this is not something that God intends to be duty-filled, uh, not to be obligatory, but to be joy-filled, to be cheerful, as the scriptures say, that God loves a cheerful giver. But one of the things that we're seeing even in the early church is that what God is doing is he's taking an Old Testament principle and he's saying even more, do even more because of the work of God in your life. So in the Old Testament, it was standard for God's people, followers of God, Israelites, to give 10% back to the temple, to the Levites, to the work of God. And so they would bring their 10%, and it was an agricultural society, and so they would bring their ox and their cattle and their lambs and their goats and 10% of what they owned, and they would bring it into the storehouse and uh, even their monies and different things. And then they would entrust that to the leaders of God's people and say, okay, we trust that you're going to use this in such a way that's going to further God's kingdom here on this earth and that was a part of the, of the old covenant rhythms of God's people as they opened their hands and their hearts to what God wanted to do in and through them in their generosity. And what you see in the New Testament is you don't see God recounting that in any way. So we can be safe in assuming that it's still kind of a 10% thing here. But less than a number and way more importantly is hearts expressing great generosity. Generosity. What you see in the early church is you see a people who aren't saying, okay, is it 10%? Is it, uh, you know, how should I give in this way? It's simply, God, I want to live before you with open hands and whatever you want me to give to you, it's all yours anyway. Here you go. There's something that's marking the people of God in this text that we have become far too unfamiliar with, and that is a sharing among one another that kind of blows all of our presuppositions about what it means to to share out of the water. There's a sharing with one another. There's a sharing with God, uh, a giving back to him that is profound. And we can even allow the enemy to weasel his way into our hearts and into our conscience in such a way, to where he'll plant little seeds here and there to where we actually give very much so out of selfish reasons than out of kingdom reasons. Maybe it's like Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe we give because we want to be seen. I like how John Stott says this. He says, they, meaning Ananias and Sapphira, Wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, which is why, why the, the early church givers were doing what they were doing, but to fatten their own ego. Why do, you, why do we give? Is it about us? Or is it about him and his church? second question I want you to consider as a part of remembering to check your heart is, why, why do you come? Why do, why do we gather here? Why are we here? I like the way that Craig Keener says this. He says, Ananias and Sapphira wanted to join God's community while also retaining their personal autonomy from God's authority part of gathering and being a part of the kingdom of God and being a part of his church and his people is to together communally say, uh, I am no longer my authority. He is. And whatever he wants from me in all of my life and what I own and what I possess and what I do and where I go, it's his. He calls me to go and do and say and be things that I normally wouldn't do and say and go and be because he is the one who is in control of my life now. And so why do we come? Do we come to network? Is that why we come to church? Is that why we gather as his people? Is it to be seen? Is it to build a reputation? Is it to feel better about ourselves? Is it is it because we think at some level God goes wow um, you've been faithful in church attendance recently I'm going to make sure I really bless you for that or is it to gather with God's people and worship the one true God second thing that we can glean from this passage from the text is to remember the severity of sin this is a hard passage this is a passage that we are unsettled by to say the least that that God would would deal with Ananias and his wife in a way to that they would breathe their last upon being called out on their, upon their sin. You look at there, there's parallel passages. There's, there's actually kind of a progression of passages throughout Scripture where we see something very, very similar. Uh, you go back to Joshua chapter 7. God's people have just defeated uh, the city of Jericho in, the, in an miraculous way, and they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, and God says, hold up. You can't go any longer because there's sin in the camp. And he says, Joshua, you've got to weed this sin out, and there is no more advancement until you do. And over the course of a series of events, they figure out that this man named Achan had conspired with his family to take some of the loot and keep it for themselves because they were allured by the lust of these things that they they knew were going to just be destroyed and done away with, and so they buried it under their tent. So God's judgment upon them was to purify the camp by killing Achan and his family. And you go, wow. You think about Judas, the deception and greed that filled his heart, that he would betray the Lord himself for the love of money and the approval of man. You see the same motives going on with Ananias and Sapphira. And one of the things that this passage serves for us is that it serves as a warning. This is not prescriptive, by the way, for God's church. God is not giving us prescription here that anytime someone is called out in sin, kill him. (laughs) It's not what he's doing here. It's not prescriptive, but it is constructive to say, I want you to remember the severity of sin. And let this be a warning to you that I have a zeal for the purity of my gathered church that you often know not of. And I will defend my church. And I will keep her pure. I don't think Ananias and Sapphira were believers. From this text, I don't think that it leads us in that direction. So here's the good news for believers. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus is we will sin, we will struggle. But God is at work in our hearts and here's the reality of the gospel in our lives is that we don't breathe our last on the heels of sin because Jesus did for us. The condemnation of something like this that we are certainly just as capable of that happened to them, Christ took the punishment in our place. And the severity of sin was laid upon him substitutionarily so that it wouldn't be laid upon us. And so what do we do? We remember the severity of sin and remember the cross and remember that the Lord the Lord longs for the purity of his church lastly remember how the enemy works he wants to deceitfully move within the church he wants to do it subtly if he can convince you that he's not at work then he's winning and so he'll come in and he'll breathe and and begin to Uh, to conjure up gossip and slander and jealousy and covetousness and anger and all kinds of interpersonal things going on. And here's three aims among many. I'm just going to give you three that he goes about trying to do in the church. He aims first to get us to deal interpersonally with each other in ways that are no different than the world. We deal with each other in conflict and relationship uh, in ways that the world would look at and go, what's different about that? You see this play out often on social media where Christians conduct themselves in ways on social media that the world looks at and goes, there's really no difference in their worry and their fear and their concern and their attacks and the way they speak and the way that they work than the person over here who knows nothing of Jesus. A second aim that he has is he aims to make church a social who's who rather than a house of worship of the one true God. That we begin to think that this place is about us, about our reputations, not realizing that there's only one reputation that matters and that's his, it's Jesus's. And so uh, we bring everything with us, including our reputations, and we lay it at the foot of the cross and remember uh, that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And this isn't a social club, this is the house of God. A third aim he has is to seduce us with the lust of this world to to the extent that the church involvement is more centered on building our own kingdoms rather than building his. He wants to get within, he wants to come in on on the Trojan horse and think that there's nothing wrong here. And then he does his work very subtly but very effectively. In our own hearts. You know, I think about the examples that I used just a moment ago from Scripture, and you have Achan. God's people had just had this incredible triumph over Jericho. And then Satan does this little thing to mess up God's advancement temporarily, but it worked temporarily. You think about even Pentecost, right? God's poured out his spirit. What does the enemy do right behind that as he stirs up the authorities to come in and oppress the church and arrest Peter and John? You look here in this text, the the community is thriving, is flourishing, is vibrant. And What does he do? He stirs up in the hearts of two people to bring about discord, to lie, to deceive. And so I think about our little church here. I think about our little world with Perimeter here and I think you know we're coming off the heels of 42 years of thriving ministry and God has graciously led us through a very successful and blessed us through a very successful leadership transition and I look at this church and I look at you and I see the Spirit of God at work and I see vibrancy and I see, I see purity in so many ways and I see uh, the, the hand of God upon us in so many ways I see flourishing and then I think what better time for the enemy to come in and to begin to work within to seek to kill and destroy and so what do we do we do the only thing that we know to do and it is the best thing and that is anchor ourselves to Jesus why Is it because it's a Sunday school answer because it's always Jesus? Yeah, we just do the Jesus thing. No, it's because he is the only one who destroys the work of the devil. I love 1 John 3, 8. The son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The irony is he seeks to destroy and it's Jesus who destroys him. He's destroying his work now And he will destroy him fully when he comes again. And so what do we do? We anchor to Jesus and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we wait. And until you come and destroy him fully and completely, we will be on guard to his ways and to his works. And we will anchor to Jesus. So let's do that. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word and how it instructs us and how it gives us wisdom and insight and perspective both to you, your character, but even to the the schemes of our enemy, that he is a roaring lion, that he does seek to kill and to to destroy, to deceive and to divide. And so, Lord, we want to anchor to you. You're the one who destroys the work of the devil. You're our hope. You are a warrior king. You are the victor. So Jesus, be praised in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. You've been
0: listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.